It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1973 film, The Wicker Man. Yeah, so, The Wicker Man. Yeah, what, what made you pick this one? Or at least make the suggestion to pick this one i should say so you probably know from talking to me often online um or i don't know how much that i saw midsummer for the first time about a year ago and it was a movie i put off seeing because from the trailers and everything it didn't seem like the kind of movie i'm that interested in Mm -hmm. finally got around to seeing it about a year ago it completely blew me away for so many different reasons. And it pushed me deeper into paying more attention to A24 movies in general, which led to me joining this ridiculous Facebook group all <laughs> about A24 movies. The reason I say it's ridiculous is because in this Facebook group, people are just constantly bringing up the same arguments and the same questions for debate over and over again. Like, they're always saying, you know, what's the best A24 movie? And it's usually always between Hereditary and Midsummer. And wow, really? Huh. this kind of debate just plays out over and over again all the time on this Facebook group. And it's always the same thing over and over again. Um, anyway, so people are always bringing up Midsummer on the forum there. And inevitably, when I'm reading the comments about people's reactions in Midsummer, because there's plenty of people who just think, like me, it's the greatest thing ever. Um, and there's other people who are like, oh, no, it was boring. It's derivative. And what I always would see, I mean, as recently as a week ago, I saw it. I see it like every week, this comment, which is on Midsummer, which is skip Midsummer, just watch The Wicker Man. Or Midsummer's all right, but it's just trying to be Wicker Man, but nothing's better than Wicker Man. It's the original. It's the best. And I, I see that comment all the time, over and over that Wicker Man is the superior movie of this, what do you call it? Um, not cult, but... Yeah, I'm not sure what you call that. Well, I, I people are always calling it something like, a, like cult or occult or pagan, whatever. Uh, whatever, if that's a genre, they always point to Wicker Man as being the be-all, end-all. And then Midsummer, Or, I mean, that's what... This is a frequent argument. So I, I've been sick of seeing this argument over and over. <laughs> and I've known other people in years past, even preceding Midsummer, who would talk about Wicker Man as this really interesting, older British horror movie. So, you know, I've been aware of this movie at least for 10 plus years. Um, it just didn't ever, just like Midsummer before I saw it, it didn't 
sound to me like something I really wanted to see ever. So, yeah, I picked this now because I just couldn't take these comments or reading these comments over and over again about how superior Wicker Man is to Midsummer. So I needed to see for myself. Yeah, see, I knew it was going to be because of Midsummer, but I didn't realize that exact context. That's a shame that that's what brought you to the movie. Because, yeah, I see those people all the time in my horror Facebook groups, too. Just kind of... There's those, that weird, like, dismissive vibe that a lot of people have about anything that feels reminiscent of something else. Yeah, and I usually think it's really, really silly. I brought it up on other podcasts I've done many times. These, these um, I always bring up the example of... Uh, with Avatar from 2009. And, and people constantly saying... Oh, it's just dances with wolves in space or in the future. And oh, it's just Fern Gully. <laughs> or Fern Gully. Those are both valid statements, absolutely. But I don't see even if they're completely true, I don't see how it takes away from Avatar. Um, and like when we talked about Dances with Wolves on the Best Picture podcast, I was saying, well, wait a second. If you go, it's just like Dances with Wolves in space. That should sound like an interesting, positive thing. Because Dance of the Wolves is an incredibly interesting, good movie. And if somebody put that in outer space, that sounds like it's interesting. Like if you've never seen Avatar. So that sounds like a selling point to me. I don't understand why it's a, a mock or, or, you know, dismissal. And, and then it's always a bad argument, too, just to dismiss something because it, it's like this other thing. Because, as we all know, whoever watches a lot of movies, watches a lot of television, or reads a lot of books. Everything is that way. Even those things that preceded, you know, and it's just what is the person doing with it or the concept in this moment? How are they drawing off those um, influences? Yes, source material influences. Yeah, so just on its own, it's, it's such a weak argument. Yeah, I need people to explain further whether they're criticizing Avatar or criticizing Midsummer. Yeah, I mean, you could say avatars like dances with dance with wolf in space, just without all like the heart and kind of spirituality aspect. It feels much more hollow in Avatar. Someone could argue, but just mm-hmm. saying that it's a carbon copy but put into space. I mean, that's not really an argument against it anyway. More of a descriptor, it's, really. But. It's really not, and yeah. So then, obviously, we're here because I've just seen so many people do it with Midsummer. Yeah, and and that's a shame. I, I hope that didn't uh, influence your viewing too much but i imagine it probably couldn't help but influence it but well it influenced it or i don't or maybe it informed it um Mm. but uh why it's like what do you think i thought about wicker man (laughs) well i can just see someone coming from having those kind of i would say assholes kind of just uh constantly berating anytime a movie comes up would kind of maybe give like a negative lens for your viewing of this but but maybe not i guess we'll get into it but i was quickly gonna ask because you said you weren't really a big horror guy do you have a ton of experience with british horror from this time period like no a big fan of no like actually virtually none from almost any time period really i mean especially if you're switching over to england or, or british I've, I've seen a few things i've seen like maybe one other movie from this time period i can't think of it had something to do with some female vampires that's maybe the only <laughs> other and that could have been a hammer film i'm not even sure if it was um or not but it was that type of movie from like the early but from around this time like around the early 70s 
That's the only one I can think of right now at the top of my head. Oh, that's fair. However, you're just reminding me of something offshoot from that, that. When I was a kid growing up in England, I was watching these very unique shows that were on TV for kids in that time period in the early 80s in England. Stuff that is, like when I think back to some of those shows, it's like unlike anything I've ever seen anywhere else. And there was this one really weird show that would be on after school. And I think it was called Chalky. I don't know if you're aware of it, because usually only people who... Chalky. I think that's what it's called. C-H-O-C-K-Y, something like that. And all it was was... And this is me going off my memories, because I haven't ever seen it, you know, uh, in more recent times. But it was like a drama, like with 30-minute episodes. And this kid was... I don't know, nine, it was 10 years old, 12 years old. And there was just something really weird about him. Like maybe he had psychic abilities, almost like the kid in The Shining, but it's not The Shining. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just this kid, there's something going on with him. And the way it was shot and the weird, um, simplistic 80s music, again, maybe a little bit shining in a way. Uh, and everything was just super creepy. Everything, everything about the mood was just creepy, but it was all about the mood and this kid being super weird and it having this very British, rural, early 80s feel to it. So, and I always thought it was the most bizarre thing because I thought, how is this a kid's show? Because it, it seems, and I've watched little clips of it like on YouTube, like in the last four years. And it is as disturbing as I'm describing, even if you're an adult. Like, it's not just disturbing for a kid. It would be disturbing for someone of any age just because of its tone and just the way everything is about it. It's so strange. But that strikes me as a very weird, unique British thing. And for that to be like an after-school type show, I could think of (laughs) nothing comparable to that, like, in the United States, you know? Uh, For kids especially. Super creepy. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna check that out. That sounds great. It's it's nuts. Yeah, there's a lot of random, a lot of random stuff, especially coming out of ITV, because that's who made that Chalky TV series. I did not know it was ITV, but I was gonna mention ITV at some point in this discussion as it pertained to something <laughs> else. Wow, all written by Anthony Reed. Wasn't that the guy? I feel like he was a script editor on Doctor Who at some point. I wouldn't be surprised, because in in a way, it does, it is. A little bit reminiscent of like um season like 18 doctor who like the last season of tom baker where things get so serious and which is exactly oh actually he was there the preceding year he was there in 77 and 78 wow weird <laughs> anyway <laughs> i did not know that connection to chalky but it's 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 an intent. It, it all. It has like a. It's. It has like a vibe. Like if, if Michael Lynch was doing like a Shining inspired kids TV show, I don't know something like that. Wait, Michael Lynch is that? David Lynch. Yeah, definitely gonna check that out. I got that to a list somewhere. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll just say. I mean, I, I'm sure I've mentioned on the podcast before. I'm a giant horror fan and British horror, particularly Hammer or uh, kind of the Little Brother Company Amicus. I've just seen it fucked out of those films, so. And, uh, yeah, Mr. Christopher Lee, of course, is just a giant, kind of towering figure with British horror, so. That was one of the things that initially drew me to this movie, among many other British horror flicks, but. When did you first see this one? It was actually 2015. I'd bought it prior, 
It had just been kind of sitting around. But it wasn't until um, the classic horror cast, one of Sean Homerig's uh, former productions that he worked on, mm-hmm. they covered this episode, and I checked it out finally because of them. Ah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, that podcast is like a dream for me. <laughs> All those movies that I find an excuse to check out. Like, yeah, I I am such a novice and have such little experience in like in this genre we're talking about, but. I've always kind of understood the appeal from afar, even though I've never gone down that road, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's always nice to have an excuse to go back and revisit some of this stuff. Yeah, who knows? Maybe I'll have that phase in my future. Because, I mean, as discussed before, that's sort of like what happened to me with Godzilla. Like, it was always around my whole life. I was always aware of it. But it... You know, I finally took that plunge later. Like, yeah, exactly. I'm sure if Arrow Video or Criterion came out with, like, their little definitive little hammer box set, if such a thing existed, I'm sure I'd probably buy that and just consume the hell out of it. Yeah, Scream Factory's been releasing a few of them this past, I think it was 2019 when they started doing it. So I've been holding off waiting for them to release, like, a big compendium of them all. But, um, yeah, I was just going to say... Maybe we should do like a little bit of a summary for people because it, it's kind of a complex story a little bit. It is and it isn't. Yeah, I guess that's fair. But um, I was going to say definitely anyone who hasn't seen this, I know Isaac's probably going to listen to this, but he really shouldn't because it is a mystery plot and there's a big twist at the end. Yeah. I was going to say, did you did you figure out the twist or? No. Because <laughs> I can't remember for me. I didn't really figure it out until it was practically upon us um you know oh, okay wow yeah no i didn't and because i didn't think you see there's sometimes when i go into a movie in a, a movie whether it's a, a quote-unquote classic or more modern where i will have all senses you know red alert all hands on deck i'm looking for every little thing i was probably like that the first time i watched midsummer for instance but then there's other movies where i won't go in with that frame of mind and I'm not expecting that level of intricacy. And so I'll just watch it like a regular movie, so to speak. And that's how I was taking in most of this movie for most of the runtime. So I didn't think it was going to be that kind of movie that was going to pull a rabbit out of its hat. So I wasn't, I wasn't looking for it either until it started to become really obvious. Well, that's great. I mean, that's the best way to experience this kind of, kind of flick. <laughs> completely surprise you yeah and i'll say also if anyone's listening and they haven't seen this movie because we're gonna get full spoilery i'm sure and this is the kind of movie that i would suggest you consider just shutting off the podcast and watching it i mean you know i'm kind of uh tipping my hand already but this should be on people's lists of of things to see you know, going in fresh as possible if you have not yet seen it at this point in your life. Absolutely. Yeah, certain movies it's best to go in with, like, no expectations, really. Oh, yeah, and that was one more thing I was going to ask. Like, because of the Midsummer connection that I assumed, like, did you have much of an expectation of what this was going to be? And did it kind of meet <laughs> what you were expecting, if anything at all? I don't know what I was expecting. I knew there was going to be... A crossover of themes somehow i didn't know how exactly but obviously i had to expect that based upon what i was saying earlier about because everyone always references them together 
but I didn't know specifically what the um, connection could be. Like, I didn't know it was literally going to be another type of um, Mayflower Day type thing. I didn't know if it was going to be about a cult or what. I didn't know until I actually watched it. But I mean, I, I was prepped for it to expect connections for sure. But there was probably more similarities than I even expected, though, uh, to be honest. Oh, okay. Oh. Quite a lot of similarities. But certainly not enough that I would think one of the movies would dismiss the other. They're still so unique in their own ways, despite their similarities. Yeah, and I'll just say for myself with Midsummer, I was just um, a fan of A24 when that movie came out, so I was just kind of seeing whatever they were putting out. And seeing the movie, I could definitely, like while I was watching it, like, oh, this is a little bit reminiscent of Wicker Man. But by the end, I mean, I was not anticipating the kind of reaction that Wicker Man fans have had to the movie, which is just very bizarre and kind of reductive to me. I don't really understand it. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. It is reductive and kind of ridiculous because to me, they seem like two things that, two separate things that people should be able to just thoroughly enjoy both. I don't see why either one should take away from the other. I think they're both super enjoyable experiences in their own right. Absolutely. Uh, but I guess just to give the little bit of a summary, very kind of surface, the film centers around an island called Summer Isle, and a police inspector arrives due to a letter that he received about a missing girl, an uh, anonymous letter, I should say. And yeah, just mysterious goings on on the island. And to jump into spoilers, it turns out that he's actually was brought there by the people of the island not to look for a missing girl, but to prove himself to be the worthy sacrifice for their big festival at the end. And uh, I guess we can get more into the details as we go along, but anything you want to add there? Um, that is what it is. And actually, aside from Midsummer Connections, just watching this movie, experiencing it for the first time, I now saw all the connections to many things it has influence that came after it. Like, I could I could see all the connections, not just from Midsummer, but from many... Like, for instance, one that comes to my mind is the episode of Torchwood uh, Countryside. You remember that one? The only one I liked from the first season. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sure at the time when Doctor Who slash Torchwood podcasters were talking about Countryside, I'm sure many people were referencing Wicker Man and all that just went over my head because I didn't really know what oh. they were talking about um, at the time. But just something like that. And there's I'm sure there's episodes of... X-Files that are like that, probably multiple episodes, where you have like the mysterious tight-knit community that has some type of secret, but you don't know what it is. Um, it's such a thing, you know, in, in different episodes. Of tele or if a person saw Love Lovecraft Country, for instance, the relatively new series on HBO, which is I highly recommend to anybody, uh, especially probably horror-type fans like yourself, actually. Because that's not really my thing, which is why I didn't want to watch Lovecraft Country. I only watched it because so many of my fellow podcasters on Sci-Fi Parlor were just going insane for the show. So I thought, okay, I'll watch it, even though this is not my thing. <laughs> and it turned out to be quite good as a whole. And if you watch that series, the very first episode has exactly what we're talking about. Hey, this is this weird rural town. What they have a secret, you know? Um, people in the community aren't 
telling the outsiders what's really going on. It has that whole vibe. It's just another great example of doing that. But yeah, I, I didn't realize that all these different newer things kind of owe something to Wicker Man. And I don't know what preceded Wicker Man that was like. I'm sure there was some other things that were somewhat like this preceding Wicker Man. But Oh yeah, I'm sure. And this was kind of carrying on that big um, like paranoia vibe that was going on in the early 70s. Films like, I think Parallax View was, was it 71? Do you remember that one? <laughs> um, I haven't like, seen um, that one, but I know, I think it just came out recently, like on Criterion or Arrow or something. Um, and Three Days of the Condor. There was like a bunch of those just kind of like paranoia films. The way I, the way I, because I haven't seen those particular ones you named, but when I've talked about sci-fi of that era uh, on other podcasts, as far as I can tell, it started with the original Planet of the Apes, and that movie was incredibly popular at the time, and it had that stunning M. Night Shyamalan-type <laughs> ending um, that blew everyone away at the time. Brilliant. And then after that first Planet of the Apes, I feel like so much sci-fi movies and, and things, they all shifted in that direction, and they all went into very... Instead of being like Flash Gordon Spaceships, Forbidden Planet, they all went into like heady concepts um, and they always try to have like a secret twist at the end. I mean, it's just like if you watch like Westworld, for, that's another one where like, I mean, the original movie where it's like you go into this place and but what's really going on, you know, and and the characters don't know um, and, and, you know, until you get this, some type of big reveal. And I feel like all those early 70s heady sci-fi movies they were all about the Soylent Green is people, you know, and everything else. Mm -hmm. and, and these were just sci-fi movies to make you think more than to wow you with visuals. And so this Wicker Man very much, you're right, falls in line with that. But something else it reminds me of, and going back to my ITV reference I teased earlier, which is, you know, I know like you... In past younger years, we grew up on a steady diet of classic Doctor Who. And when you're someone who's exposed to a bunch of that, like I was, and I'm particularly talking about like the early 70s or 70s Doctor Who, Tom you know, that's Baker. kind of the only... Yeah, well, Pertwee and Baker, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the only... Some of the only British television I've seen, you know, from that era. It's like just only Doctor Who and not much of anything else. And when you see so much of that stuff... And only that. I guess your brain just kind of thinks that's probably just how everything looked on television in England. Uh, like, you know, pretty low budget, very handheld, 16, 16 millimeter looking. And you just kind of think everything's going to look like that because your brain just assumes that was the standard, I guess, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but then, so around, I don't know when, circa 2008 nine you know listening to doctor who podcasts i often heard people uh bring up the prisoner and that's probably where i first started to hear about it well i'd heard about the prisoner before because i was a big iron maiden fan back in the day but i never delved deeper into what the heck the prisoner actually was when i was just an iron maiden fan and so hearing people talk about it in doctor who podcasts uh in the late aughts um i heard so much about it and then this box set came out for The Prisoner on Blu-ray, which was kind of unheard of at the time. 
because there wasn't many classic shows at all period on the format and it's like oh the prisoner and i thought i'll, I'll check this out i'll see what this is all about i'll take the plunge and, and you've seen the prisoner before i know it only from the remake <laughs> that's when i heard about it when that remake came out so you've only seen, you mean like the i think ian mckellen was in the remake is that the one you're talking about yeah i think it was like maybe like 2009 something like that it was somewhere around there yeah um well if you have i thought for sure because of what all you've seen and imbibed (laughs) i thought for sure you would have seen the prisoner well now you must see the prisoner yeah i really thought you absolutely you don't have to watch the whole series i've never watched the whole series but just watch the first episode or two and and you'll already be in or you'll you'll understand why you need to watch it so i get this box set for the prisoner and i think it came out the series originally like in 69 or something like that and i thought oh you know i'm sure it'll have a like a doctor who production vibe or something (laughs) i could not be more wrong about that what's so startling when you watch the original prisoner for the first time is how incredibly high budget it seems in production and cinematography and everything because like i said i i just assumed it would look like doctor who from that same time period oh so wrong oh so wrong it has this itv meaning commercial television that has a budget Mm -hmm. um it, it is at least in those early episodes quite pristine quite amazing it the production values really blow you away um they really really do the music, the opening title sequence is so top-notch. It gets you so excited on episode one because you're just like, what is this? What is this going to be? And then when you start watching it, I mean, I guess you already know the premise, at least if you've seen the remake, but mm-hmm. our protagonist just wakes up in this strange village or town that he has no idea how he got there um, or what's going on. And it has all these same kind of vibes as Wicker Man. Um, because nothing makes sense to him in this world and people who occupy the village seem to be in the know but no one's talking and another aspect of it that most people know is he seems to not be able to leave the village either no matter what he does and the prisoner so fits into this vibe that we're talking about of sci-fi of that era um and the prisoner was just so on the vanguard of this genre so just tons of prisoner vibes as i was watching this movie and the prisoner looks so good as a television production in in a way it it almost has better production values than this movie in a way not not completely but in a way yeah i think this was fairly low budget i didn't look into it but i'm pretty sure it is yeah i'm sure yeah it it has a, okay that's the thing it has that independent vibe meaning low budget small production i'm sure many of these actors and i i believe many many of them were just from the community i'm sure they many did it for free but for being an independent movie from 73 it is so well made mm-hmm. which is what surprises you or surprises me because it comes off as a very seriously made movie despite the budget yeah and i was gonna save this for a bit later in the podcast but robin hardy he only really directed this film some random movie that i I can't remember what the name of it was then he directed like a sequel to this in 2011 and that movie's so 
it feels so amateurish. It's kind of shocking how much of an assured hand he had with this movie. Because it feels so deliberately paced and just... It really feels like there's somebody who knows what he's doing behind the camera making this. And then just to make the awful film, The Wicker Tree, I was shocked by that. <laughs> it's interesting because I read up a little bit on that and I was curious about it. But I wasn't expecting to hear the description you just delivered. Yeah, it it feels like a really low budget movie. Whereas this, it feels like they stretched everything and made it feel like a real movie even if they didn't have much money. That one feels like not a real movie. And then this this movie also fits into, aside from the horror, creepy village vibe, it, it's also another subgenre of movies or television shows that take place on an island, mm-hmm. which is also interesting in its own way, or a place that is very segregated like an island would be, but places can be segregated or separated in other ways. Like, um, I actually just started thinking about Moonrise Kingdom. Because that also has that very islandy vibe, and you can only get there at certain times, or by plane, or whatever, or by ferry, or in a way something like something that's a bit different. But Insomnia, have you seen that? Either the original or the Christopher Nolan version? No, I've never seen it. I think that's the only <sighs> Nolan film I haven't seen. Actually, it is. Yeah. It's another great, interesting one. Of course, for Nolan, it was based upon an existing work. Uh, so it wasn't all his original idea or anything. But it also has this interesting vibe. Even though it's not on an island, it takes place in some small town in Alaska. And because of the, the weather and environment, you can't really get to the town except by plane as well. So like once you're there, you're there. So it's just another one of those interesting microcosm type community type stories. So that's just like another subgenre this movie this movie fits into outside of the horror trappings. Yeah, which if anybody listened to our Sea Shanties of Horror series that we did last year, they know that I love island settings. It's my, one of my favorite settings for horror films, or really any film. But I love that isolation and yeah, just you're just kind of trapped there at the mercy of either the elements. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even like Lost for a lot of those reasons. That was one of the things that kept me going with that show, even when the plot started to lose me. But <laughs> Yeah, and that's another one that falls into that, almost like the prisoner, like what the heck is going on in this place, and then you're, you're constantly waiting for the next nugget of information or reveal. But, I mean, I, that's probably, I, again, I haven't finished the, the whole series of The Prisoner, but that I wouldn't be surprised if it gets tedious when you go through the whole season with Prisoner as it does with lost at times because you just feel like man we're just going in circles here you know that gets frustrating (laughs) at a point yeah the prisoner isn't that long though right i think it's like it's like 20 episodes something like that it's in that range something like that oh but i was also going to say um being uh someone who grew up in the 80s were you a big fan of the equalizer for uh, mr edward woodward there because this is the only thing that i've seen him in except for um you talk about the american series that they just revived yeah yeah the one that when Edward Woodward was in it. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, of course, yeah. No, actually, that was not, because I was in England at the time that that series was running. Um, so I only saw the American shows that were imported to England in that time period, and Equalizer was not one of those shows. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm only vaguely aware of it, but I haven't actually got to experience it for myself. Yeah, because I remember when I watched this the first time, I'd like, I'd, heard of edward woodward 
it's kind of a hard name to say. <laughs> um, and of course I'd seen Hot Fuzz, and so I, I vaguely remembered him from that. But he just blew me away with this movie. No, I don't. Re I didn't remember he was in Hot Fuzz. Yeah, he's one of the. I guess that's another one where there's kind of like the weird villagers in in some ways. It but... is. It is. And so is the uh, the movie um, End of the World, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if uh, Edgar Wright was influenced by this. I mean, I'm sure he was. I mean, how could he not be? I'm sure he was. And actually, all three of those movies from that loose trilogy, all feature that small community trapped in that community ridiculous things are going on in that community like you know with Shaun of the Dead and all three of them are all have those vibes mm -hmm. oh, but did you have any more familiarity with Woodward besides uh, this film no just this he reminds me of other actors but no one specific I mean like he, he reminds me of the kind of person who would be um, and maybe he was and I don't even know who would be randomly cast as some random Imperial officer in the original Star Wars trilogy like he comes yeah. across as that kind of Brit. It feels like he should have been in Doctor Who, Star Wars, and Indiana Jones, like so many of those people were. Absolutely. He's yeah. He seems like he should be of that club, for sure. Oh, but yeah, just especially some of the scenes towards the end of the film. I mean, I just I was stunned that I haven't seen more movies with this guy because he was just excellent in this. And maybe I just haven't been watching the flicks that he's been in. But he is good, but he's also portraying that british every man of a certain age group yeah yeah i mean just with his like kind of uh i don't know how you would describe it like super stick up his ass pop but yes he's like the super straight man but he's also descriptively not politically but descriptively uber conservative type of character very sensible mm -hmm. very um status quo for you know the world he comes from probably wanted doctor taken off the air <laughs> probably a big supporter of the video nasties era <laughs> you know and i was surprised too on the little background reading i did on this movie that because okay i don't I'm not exactly sure from my mild research but you know this is like i don't know how to describe it like it's almost like because i don't know because i'm I don't exactly know how it works with foreign films, especially European, because it's so different than the United States. But it's one of those almost like, not government funded, but how do you describe it? Like a production, like not 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 the genre it falls into, but it's, it's I don't know, do they have like some type of British film department or something? And it's like that kind of, do you know what I'm, what I'm trying to say? Yeah, they, they actually have a huge, like a lot of movies that are made here in BC the the provincial government gives them grants and stuff like that and so i see a ton of that yes that's not that's what i'm trying to say badly but for that type of movie which you know involves some type of government or public grants i'm surprised at how envelope pushing it is in content mm. i mean especially with like the things that are shocking to our protagonists in the movie like the lewdness, even if it was just the lewdness in some of like the bar songs and Willow song, like in the lyrics. But then, of course, as soon as he leaves, I say a bar, like as soon as he leaves the pub or tavern, there's like the young people like just fornicating outdoors. The or the infamous Britt Eklund scene. <laughs> which one's that? Uh, when she's singing her uh, 
seduction song and just gyrating. Oh, I didn't realize that. I forgot that was her name. I thought you were talking about somebody else. That is an insanely memorable scene. I or did not see that coming. It's not one you're going to forget. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay, and let me backtrack and then get back to this where we're at right now. Because we haven't mentioned yet that this movie is in fact a musical. Yes. By and large, I did not see that coming. It is a bit shocking how many musical numbers there are. And I guess they were mostly produced by a band that went by the name Magnet. But you can tell so much effort went into like the lyrics and everything. The music is such a, a big part of the movie, surprisingly big part of the movie. And it was apparently, uh, they were already in production, already filming, and Robin Hardy and the writer, uh, what was his name again? Something Schaefer. They just decided partially through, like, hey, you know, we should turn this into a musical. Like, I guess they had some musical elements, and they were just like, no, let's just keep going with this. This is really working. And I personally, that's one of the things that makes the film really unique to me. I love all those aspects. Absolutely does. I Nobody ever mentioned that whenever I heard about The Wicker Man in any form. <laughs> nobody ever mentioned it was a musical. I had no idea that was coming. So when we get to Willow's song, like, okay, you barely meet her character um, uh, maybe 10 minutes before this song. Um, and you're already thinking in your head as an audience member who's, you know, coming into this movie oh you know i bet she's gonna there's gonna be some type of seduction scene between her and our protagonist like you kind of think and you wonder how it's gonna play out you don't realize it's gonna play out 10 minutes after you meet her and and that it's gonna play out in the way it does with her song and all her antics that she's doing while naked and and the movie just went to this whole other place rather quickly and if you weren't in the movie already, then you're just super, or I was just super in now because now I knew, like, I w- could not know what to expect, you know, after <laughs> after getting to that, you know, in the first quarter of the movie. Uh, other interesting fact I learned about that sequence, aside the fact that they used a body double for whenever they show her nude below the waist, I didn't realize those were all body doubles. But now that I know and you go back and watch, you can tell. But another interesting yeah. thing about it, did you know who was singing the vocal for that song in particular? Oh, no, I don't. I don't have her name written in front of me right now, but I'll be able to identify her from something else. So I saw her I saw her name, you know, in, in the wiki saying she sung. They mentioned how she was, like, you know, a known British, I guess, folk and jazz singer, I think is how it described her. But then she had also been an actress, and I thought, hmm, what has she been in? So, of course, I clicked on the link on her name. Never in a million years. Are you familiar with um, Superman Part 3? Oh, of course. Yep. Oh, oh I, I, you know, someone of your age group, who knows if it's of course or not. Um, that's a very derided Superman movie. I, I feel wrongly, but I was at the right age. It was my favorite as a kid. I should be embarrassed to say. As a kid, it was mine as well. <laughs> but not as an adult. But anyway, um, <laughs> so you remember like the, the evil sister who got taken over by the computer at the end? Terrifying. That actress is the voice for Willow's song. Wow, really? Oh, so just that song she didn't... Because I know Britt Eklund was dubbed for the whole movie, but... I think there was maybe another vocalist who, who 
whose voice was used for singing as well. But for Willow's song, it is she, the evil sister from uh, Superman 3. And that was pretty mind-blowing. Wow, that's really funny. <laughs> you would never think that. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's definitely a good musical number. It is! I mean, the scene itself, I mean, it almost distracts music. And I even, I had to, I even looked for it after I watched the movie. I looked for it on Spotify. And I don't know if you know the sneaker pimps who were popular for a hot second in the late 90s like an alternative rock no. band um, European from that time on their one popular album in the late nineties, they did a cover of this song on the last track on their album. And it's mostly pretty faithful to the original. And I listened to oh, that. Wow. It's quite good. Um, but then you can actually listen to the original version, which is probably the best version off the actual Wicker Man soundtrack. Which was definitely a frequent uh, listen after I saw this movie the first time. I listened to that soundtrack many, many times. Yeah, it's this movie is very surprising in so many different ways. Eklund is that her name? Yep. I so 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 I'm seeing her in this movie and I'm thinking, wow, this person is quite fetching. What else did she do? I don't know. I had no idea. She was the Bond girl from The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, with Christopher Lee. Yeah. Exactly with Christopher Lee. And, you know, they must have been riding a high off Wicker Man because that, that movie was produced, <laughs> you know, not too long after that, after this. But see, if you listen to The Old Chicken Not Stirred, do you remember what I was saying about her during that commentary? I do because a lot of people remembered what I was saying about her specifically in that movie commentary um i remember when she had like the tape in her butt um but no i don't remember what you said (laughs) at one moment i want to say it's during uh, some scene when they're running around some ruins or something or at night i just spontaneously said like she looks like the female willem dafoe oh was that her and the rest of the guys on the commentary thought that was really funny and they kept like making reference to that and because once i said it they couldn't get the thought out of their mind and so that's always been my prevailing memory of her in that Bond movie is her looking like a female Willem Dafoe, uh, which I know doesn't sound very flattering. <laughs> I remember uh, you said that about Barbara Bach. <laughs> and then to realize, oh my gosh, this is the same person. And I would never call it the female Willem Dafoe in this movie. Um, <laughs> I think she just got a bit more tan and more gaunt in the face uh, in the Bond movie, which is why I started thinking that. But, uh, yeah, I, I, she was quite fetching. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just say, uh, as someone who was always a fan of Good Night, uh, not so much the character, but Britt Eklund, the actress, when I saw this the first time, I was like, hey, it's my buddy. Look, she showed up in another movie. And I was very pleased uh, when that musical number uh, kicked off, I'll just say. Um, but I was going to ask. Yes? Do, do you know which cut of the movie you watched? Because this movie, it's, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like Blade Runner, where there's like three very distinct cuts, but um, Robin Hardy, I guess, has kind of taken the, the George Lucas route with THX 1138 or Star Wars, where the only one that's really available now is kind of his preferred cut, the final cut. But if you bought this on like DVD, you, you could catch it through the theatrical cut, which is a little bit different, but I was just curious to see if you knew which one you watched. Yeah, um, I don't know which cut this is. It's probably the first you mentioned, I would guess. It's a one hour, 28 minutes uh, running time. And 
it's whatever version it's probably the newer blu-ray version because i think studio canal acquired the rights and their logo is blazoned at the beginning of this cut uh and it this i'm watching the version um that is streaming on the criterion channel uh but again i from studio canal i'm guessing it's probably that newer blu-ray release which i know is a certain version in of itself but i'm not sure which oh, okay. one, that's the final cut or which one that is it's the one that has a little bit of restoration i think uh i mean when i say restoration i mean bits added in did you uh did you see a scene where christopher lee like brought her like a little like man boy <laughs> he was like another gift to aphrodite like early on the movie before she had her seduction scene there a man boy he comes up to her room and uh old mr police detective guy is all disgusted because christopher lee like brings her this young man to to sleep with for the night i that's the first time we see christopher lee in the movie i don't think i remember that oh interesting maybe you saw a theatrical cut then i've never seen that version so that's kind of what i was wondering i don't i don't recall that i feel like i would remember it but uh did it start with him in church, or did he start arriving at the island? Started arriving at the island. Oh, wow, yeah, you saw the theatrical cut then. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've never seen that cut. Okay, if, if you say so. <laughs> yeah, because I read there was one that had him at the church at the beginning, but this was not that. Yeah, oh, okay. Oh, I, gotta... I was wondering your thoughts on that. Um, well, mine didn't start in church, but early on in this cut I was watching, uh, I don't know, 8-minute mark, 10-minute mark, there's a brief little it it's like a like a flashback which shows him at church attending church oh weird i don't know if that's in the, in the version you're watching no um but it's like he's just gotten to the island he's just getting situated and then it just shows him it might be before he goes to sleep i'm not sure the first night but he just sort of like reminiscing and it does like this weird like memory thing or he, and it just shows him it's like some of his church scenes so maybe it was presented differently in the versions you've seen but still you've seen him at church in the movie what were your thoughts on that on on the meaning of showing him in his traditional church setting as it pertains to the movie or the story because I had some thoughts that's partially what I was asking because um, I, I've known for a long time I think they even talked about it in that uh, classic horror cast episode that it originally started with him just arriving on the island, so you would have not even realized that he was like this super religious figure, right? For the longest time, that is how it starts. But then, like I said, there's like a little flashback sequence. Yeah. That, that you in. Yeah. Personally, I think I would prefer if they just stuck with the theatrical cut of him just arriving on the island. I feel like it would have changed some of the, the context. But what is so? But what? Either way, what do you think of that? What do you think? The context is right. What do you? What is the filmmaker trying to convey when they do show those parts of his background? What do you? What are your thoughts on that? I said I should have like looked more at what he was saying. I was more just thinking, oh yeah, fuck, I forgot it started this way. <laughs> In the cut I'm watching, they don't even. There's only the only vocal or the only dialogue during the flashback is him uh, reciting uh, the communion. I'm trying to think of the proper religious word, what they call it. Um, which I can't think right now what it is called but he's doing the communion right basically that's the only dialogue in the flashback in church yeah we saw him doing that in my cut and we also saw them like singing some old hymns stuff like that Uh, yeah I don't think it had that it didn't have that bit but regardless of either version 
what, 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 what did you take away as the intent of showing that, any of that? Well, at least in my version, the intent seemed to be to set up immediately that he was this very religious kind of figure. So he, was, he wasn't just a person sitting in the service who's actually like taking part in it. He wasn't just kind of a passive religious person like a lot of folks are. But I'm not sure if the context would be different on your end. I think it would probably work with either version. What I'm thinking. Because I thought it was an extremely significant bit of character development either way. Um, be- okay. Because I felt on the surface level, that's exactly what they were trying to say very obviously. This is a very conservative Christian. I'm not exactly sure how the Church of England works because I'm not an expert on on their sect Me neither. of Christianity. <laughs> so I don't know if this is a Church of England thing. But looking at it from an American perspective, because they're doing the communion right and they're saying the words the way they're saying it, it comes across as very Catholic to my American sensibilities. Um, and so that makes him seem even more uber religious because without getting all into religion talk, Catholic generally comes across as being a bit more um, rote and traditional even more so than protestant protestantism and mm-hmm. so he comes off as even more religious so to speak in a christian sense because it seems very catholic you know it'd be like in in modern context it'd be like saying he's like a, um, like an evangelical or something uh you know um not that that's what he is in as it, he's portraying the movie anyway okay so that's the surface level so he's very traditional christian and then that's setting up how abhorrent you know all this paganism that we're about to experience along with him so you know it'd be even more abhorrent to him because if you're in the traditional christianity there's a lot of anti-paganism you could say so fine that's the surface level but i felt like the filmmaker was going to another nolan level with with this background because they're, they're highlighting the um the communion in particular and i don't know how familiar you are with all that stuff or how how familiar any of the listeners are but i'm just gonna pretend i'm speaking to somebody who doesn't know anything about catholicism or communion <laughs> so i'm speaking to some foreign alien who doesn't know anything and so i'm breaking it down <laughs> very simply sure so during this ritual that is a cornerstone it is the cornerstone of catholicism this particular ritual when it happens in the mass it's like the climax of of every weekly mass for a catholic um and the priest or whomever is literally taking some bread or unleavened bread um they use different things sometimes and is literally like blessing it and saying now that this bread like literally represents like the body of Christ. Um, I mean, they, they mean it as if, as if they have just transformed this regular bread into the body, meaning like the literal body uh, of Christ, not Mm -hmm. figurative. And then they do the same thing with the wine and it's the blood. And it's taken as seriously as anything could be taken. Like, you know, if you're a Catholic or whatever, um, and then you're literally going to consume this now because it, it makes you, you know, more one uh, more with God or whatever, because you're like literally consuming his body 
and and this is a a very you know like i said it's a weekly ritual and you and you always go through the same steps so that's how it's done in the catholic mass um but if you're an alien from another planet and like i was just describing this to you what would you think about that like if you're some type of other intelligent alien species and i'm telling you there's this group of humans who every week they pretend like this bread and this wine is flesh and blood and they consume it like what would you think if you're an alien and you had no context on christianity or or human christian religion i think it's pretty disgusting and as someone who grew up in a church where we would do that it was always very bizarre to me i I never quite uh, so just the way they would describe it. Now we eat the flesh. Now we drink the blood. Yes, I was just like ooh. <laughs> so I felt because they specifically highlighted that because they could have done the mass in many or the scenes that they showed in the movie. They could have shown some very different things if they wanted to, um, other than that. But to focus on something like that, I think they were trying to say that if you're coming into any religious practices by whomever and you're uninitiated it could come off as really bizarre to you like it does to our protagonist just seeing these supposedly like pagan traditions and it's abhorrent to him but i think by highlighting his religious background the way it's highlighted in the movie it kind of juxtaposes wait which one is more crazy like is it more crazy to sacrifice to some spirit that governs your crops and weather like is that more crazy than having a ritualistic unification with with your deity in in another manner you know what i'm saying and i i think because of the way it was presented in the cut i watched it makes it seem like should you necessarily criticize other people's way of doing things without looking inward at the same time i could definitely see that reading especially in the context of the film which is kind of constantly putting him looking like this crazy lunatic for being so outraged and being so uh kind of like wanting to shut everything down when everyone else is just calm and he just looks like kind of a loon even though his point of view is more the accepted norm yes exactly and yes and i think that was one of the prevailing messages of the movie outside of the suspense and mystery and everything else because like you said, he comes across as the more crazy person, unhinged, zealotrous. He comes off as the fringe believer. Well, of course, because he's the minority on the island. I mean, he only, he's the only representative of the traditional religion. Oh, but not just, not just that. The way he goes about <laughs> kind of questioning, he assumes the moral authority immediately. Everyone yes. else is wrong. Everything that he says is right. Yes, I mean, basically, just in the fact they believe different, he, like, threatens to do, like, an inquisition. We're going to bring my cops in here, we're going to investigate you guys. Like, what the f- <laughs> It just sounds so crazy, the whole movie. Yeah, so, I mean, it, I think it's like a lot of the side theme is not realizing when you're the one who's doing all the imposing. Mm-hmm. And you're the one who's actually, from a certain point of view, he's the more rebellious outsider you know trying to come in to this land i mean it's i don't know you could relate it to a lot of other things like like columbus coming to the new world or whatever in movies or in whatever context and a lot of christian uh, history with imperialism but there's also that weird whole aspect of him i mean the fact that he's 
his whole investigations from an anonymous source. We never find out who the source was. He never finds out. And he's just so gung-ho. Well, isn't it heavily implied? Well, again, it was a fabrication. But isn't it implied, though, that it came from the mother of the child? And then it seems like she's just in on it later. Well, I mean, Summer Isle himself could have written it, I mean, for all we know. But I just mean in terms of he has no real context for what he's just... He just immediately trusts it. And I think probably the fact that people kind of buck his authority immediately... So it makes him want to investigate so much more. So it doesn't even matter if it's true. It's just he believes it's true. And so he's going to. Now, obviously, I love this movie. As anyone can tell from everything we've been saying. I do have one little criticism of it, though. Like one thing that I feel like I would change if I could or if I was. Not that I'd want to ruin this movie, you know, or that I should have <laughs> any input on its making or execution. But the one thing that threw me just a bit was that. Okay, I understand this is this isolated island community off the mainland. They obviously do their own thing in, in, in many ways, uh, not just in their beliefs, etc., etc. But the one thing that a bit took me out of it or distracted me was that, especially the characters that are like in their early 30s and younger, they're all dressed so hip to the times of 73 England. And it seemed distracting to me that they were so looking of the times with their haircuts and their clothing, etc. Because usually, in whatever time period, modern times, for instance, when you get to more rural areas, more separated, geographically separated areas, people tend not to look so urban chic. And that kind of threw me a bit because they were especially the younger people, they were all dressed uber mainstream for the time. Did you notice that? Did that throw you at all? Did that seem perfectly fine to you? Yeah, now that you say it, I noticed it, but no, it didn't It didn't occur to me at the time. It's all I could think about. That <laughs> was more noticing just like all the kilts and Britt Eklund's outfit that she wears looks a little bit more old school, and so I guess I wasn't noticing more the extra players, but... And I guess part of the reason why I'm affected or like that I can't not notice that is not only from my experiences in the United States, mostly in Texas being in rural areas, not only that though, but so I grew up as a kid in a village in England, in rural England in Northamptonshire. And I was in a village and it was very apparent to me that almost everyone who lived in my village, like their clothing was very conservative, sort of timeless like the clothing everyone wore whether they were a kid or an older person it looked like nondescript could be from the 60s could be from the late 50s like very like clothing that stood the test of time like the antithesis of trendy because of course whenever i saw things on television like people who lived in like a bigger english city or of course something like london or something I would see that, and, oh, those people are dressed more like the trend of the era, right? And like, oh yeah, the, you know, you can just tell like the colors or the the cut of the of the whatever they're wearing. But in the village I grew up in, everything was so plain Jane, like it was, you know, the early '80s. But you, would, but people's clothing in my village did not scream early '80s. It just seemed very nondescript. And so 
that's probably another thing that shades my bias on this of like why do these people look so 73 trendy especially the younger people yeah i can definitely see that there was actually one person who stood out to me as feeling kind of out of place and it was the singer of the gently johnny song and they're like kind of like tapping on the uh, tables and this one guy starts singing and it turns out that was actually the writer of all the music paul giovanni and so he kind of looked a little bit more i don't know like coffee shop <laughs> and there was a few people who stood out and because there was the other guy who looked there was another guy i don't know if i think it's a different person than the one you're speaking of when the next day on his second day and he goes out and i think that he goes by the maypole before he goes to the school building for the first time and there's some man out there singing and he looks like a british 1973 game show host or something <laughs> you know what i'm talking about oh absolutely yeah, i love that scene but he, he's another guy who's he, lo- he looks like a ken doll with like with dark hair color instead of the ken hair color and that's just, yeah it's just another random person who just sticks out and like it almost reminds me of, I, I don't know if this is a mildly deep pull, but if you saw um, Across the Universe, mm-hmm. um, and it almost makes me think of, even though it's not the same thing, but it's as jarring as like when Eddie Izzard comes out and sings like for the benefit oh. of Mr. Kite, and it's just so out of context of everything else visually in the movie. I don't know, that's, that's how some of this stuff strikes me. Uh, it just like it's not as crazy as Eddie Izzard, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it, but it because of the setting and like, I mean, even I mean, I'm looking at Christopher Lee on the screen right now. Even he looks so damn seventy three chic. Um, like he's the equivalent of nowadays. It's more common, like with a what was the celebrity chef's name, Anthony Bourdain. But uh, guys nowadays in contemporary times who are like in their fifties but are dressed like so cool like like they're still in their early 30s or something but they're 55 years old mm-hmm. Christopher Lee's character comes across as looking like that as well which I don't know what sense that makes except for him being I guess like a, um, a bit eccentric cultish leader I mean I guess there's that there's also kind of a weird juxtaposition with him because i mean they're of course they're reaching back to these old traditions old god kind of vibe but he feels so much more modern in the way he dresses and talks and speaks compared to the uh howie that's what i'm talking that's exactly what i'm talking about that's exactly what i'm talking about yeah but i always always thought that worked with him well the the way it works in my mind if it even makes sense in a weird way in my mind, he's almost like this Willy Wonka character on the island. <laughs> I can kind of see that. It's not a direct comparison, obviously. Uh, but, mm-hmm. I mean, he is this larger-than-life character who, like, lives, like, in... You know, it's funny, because I'm thinking... It's making me think of things that happen, like, in... Because I said Willy Wonka, and but actually I'm thinking more Tim Burton kind of stuff. Oh. And even though they look completely different, I'm just thinking of Vincent Price's character in um, in uh, Edward Scissorhands being like the odd man who lived in the crazy old mansion at the top of the hill. Um, and that's, in a way, that's how I'm envisioning this Christopher Lee character is the crazy old man who lives in the castle on top of the hill. Yeah, and then you get to him, especially in your cut, where you wouldn't have seen him beforehand. It pained me how long it took 
to finally meet his character because I kept expecting it and it just took forever. And did you know it was Christopher Lee going into the movie? Oh yeah, I knew. I knew. I knew because I oh, knew okay. before I even saw the movie. So I was anticipating sure. his appearance. It just took forever. Yeah, and as someone who's seen just a, a ton of ton of Christopher Lee movies, this is like a really different kind of role for him. Like he's always the authority figure, but this one's so much more just kind of casual and good humored. I just love seeing him in this role. And I think he said this was his favorite role as well that he ever did. That's interesting. I could I would I would I would say it would be Saruman, but I mean what do I know? I'm no Christopher Lee expert. Yeah, and I'll just say, uh, he showed up in The Wicker Tree, by the way, for one scene, as a very, very old man. Oh, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, and because you mentioned uh, you being a Texan, they actually have two extremely evangelical Texans in The Wicker Tree going to visit a weird little Scottish town, and one of the characters wears a cowboy hat the whole time, and it's just, it's, it felt so weird and unsubtle, and just, it, it's such a shame that that movie happens. And you're making me think about the characters in uh, Delt and the Bannerman, is what you're making me think about now. These wacky Americans (laughs) who came from I don't know where in the United States. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the. uh, I think that one's worse than Time of the Ronnie, personally, but. Uh, Uh, That's hard when you're comparing. (laughs) <laughs> things like that's that. fair because i can see pros and cons on either one if those are my only two choices or the crazy american guy in uh in newer doctor who in, in the was it the dalek episode oh yeah the um crazy like, elon musk type character in utah or something wacky yeah. americans or the uh the new trump analog that they had with the, oh jeez, uh, let's not Jody. Even, let's not talk about <laughs> for now let's not talk about the most recent current times of Doctor Who that, that's another conversation for another day oh but just because we're talking about Doctor Who I just wanted to quickly mention Miss Ingrid Pitt in here for her brief little role that she has <laughs> and there's another guy who has a small role in the movie but and I was trying to look at IMDB but I gave up but he did he have sideburns mm, I don't recall but he looks so familiar to me he's just a nondescript townsperson in his he looks like he's in like late 50s early 60s and he's just a random townsperson he only shows up a few times but he has the most familiar face ever he was he the gardener the the grave digger he could be a gardener yeah, because you would have just seen him, you because you watched uh, Clockwork Orange not that long ago, right? Oh! Yeah, he played uh, the creepy molester, uh, <laughs> um, what would you call it, like a truant officer or something? Oh, that's it. That's it. That's what Yeah, I'll is. never forget that guy's face from a Clockwork Orange. That disturbed oh, me very I much, that character. I didn't realize that's <laughs> where I was keen, because I thought for sure it was some classic Doctor Who or something. Oh, you're right. That is the guy. Yeah, there is there is one guy. Yeah, there's um, he was like the little manservant to Lord Summer Isle, like Walker in the kilt. He had these huge sideburns, and I was like, I know that guy. I know he was in a Tom Baker story. It turns out that he was in the first episode of Hand of Fear. And so I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> just these Doctor Who faces, they just they stick in my head. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Anger Pitt is weird in this movie. She's got that one scene when 
he's looking for Rowan at the end, and he opens up a door and she's like naked in a tub. Do you remember yes. that, that shot? I was like, what the what the fuck's this? <laughs> yes, you're right. Oh, and this reminds me of a jag I was going on earlier that I did not complete when I was earlier in this discussion talking about how this was, you know, like a public government, whatever funded movie. Because as I was saying, you know, it's such it's such a shocking movie with the fornication outdoors and all the nakedness and lewdness. Quite shocking for something that's, you know, a well-granted movie. But not only that, I was surprised because, you know, I don't ever do any internet research until after I've watched a movie for the first time. And I thought I might see some things in the Wikipedia like uh, this movie was given like an X rating in this country or it was banned in this other country or there was a lot of controversy because of, you know, the boundaries it was pushing. And I was surprised to not really see anything like that at all because, you know, like you said, we... We recently reviewed um, Clockwork Orange on the other podcast, and that movie came out in, what, 73? 71. 71. But that movie was surrounded in all those controversies because of, you know, how it was pushed. And I know it was, like, more rape and, and other things depicted in that movie. But I thought this movie would be the kind of thing that would be received in that kind of way as well. But no, I did not notice that in anything that i read that surprised me yeah a lot of smaller horror films were really delving into that nudity and sexual stuff at the time so it probably just went under the radar or something like a clockwork orange kubrick yeah i was surprised because it sounds like because you know like movies like clockwork orange and other things oftentimes were misunderstood or misinterpreted when they first came out and it wasn't until later that people came back but it seems like this movie was well received right out of the gate that in of itself seemed interesting to me because it, it didn't seem like it would be like that just me watching it without any other context i thought it comes across as a movie that that would be more controversial publicly uh, at time of release yeah I, I guess i could see that yeah it might have just flown enough under the radar that it didn't get enough attention but yeah are there any other big i guess we could talk about that end scene the final kind of confrontation after he finds Rowan. And then uh, well, him and Lord Samara have their little... Unless you have something else to... No, no, no. Like I said, so I didn't realize what the twist was going to be until it was nearly upon us. Because by the time he was about to rescue Rowan and he kind of like realized she was alive, I kind of figured out finally at that point, oh, he was lured into this place. Oh, he, I, you know... You know, five minutes before the reveal, I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to be the one they sacrifice. Oh, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Um, and then once I had the the realization, for some reason, I was no longer compelled. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying the movie took a dip or anything. I'm just saying I just went, oh, okay, I see. And then everything that happened after that, it, it didn't shock me anymore at that point, now that I understood mm-hmm. And so and then I just kind of went with it. And like it just was what it was. Once I understood that this is what's going to happen. Which I will say is I had many more thoughts about, you know, spoiler for those that haven't seen Midsummer, The ending of that, the very ending of that movie, which is kind of the same. I had much more thoughts and emotions going into the sacrifice at the end of that movie uh, than I mm. did with this one. 
So I don't know if that's because I saw this one after or because... So that's the other thing. Well, different kind of emotional weight. Yes. So that's the thing. So now that I've seen the movie, and I think it's an excellent movie, obviously, far exceeded my expectations on on so many levels. Just really stunning uh, how good I think it is. Because again, I'm not... I'm, I'm not uh, I have no proclivities towards horror or anything like that. I just thought it was an excellent movie. That being said, now that I can look back and with more context at these comments I see in forums, while I think they're both excellent movies in their own kind of way, I, I am still so much more a midsummer person. Meaning, because of reasons, multiple reasons, coming together, that movie hits me a lot harder and affects me a lot more with the certain climatic moments and like the overall message of that movie yes this movie makes me feel a little unsettled at times but not the way midsummer does midsummer just by a lot of the mood sequences conjures so much anxiety and mental discomfort in me like throughout the whole entire movie at many different points. And then when I consume Midsummer as a whole and then reflect on the movie and, and, and what the the director, writer was trying to say, like that movie leaves me much more lost in thought and everything. Um, so while I think they're both great movies and there's obviously a lot they share in common, Midsummer is much more the total package for me I don't know. How do you feel about all that? If you're comparing the two. Well, I, I think that there's a much more kind of deliberate, kind of calculated element to Midsummer. Yes. N- not just in terms of the writing, but also just in terms of like the filmmaking side of it. So I, I just... A million percent agree with that. And also some of the surrealist aspects. In so many ways, Midsummer's more up my alley. Um, not to say this isn't, of course, but just yeah. it tickles my fancy a little bit more. Yeah, so I guess it sounds like we're both very much on the same page as it as it pertains to all that. Because while I like Midsummer for all its similarities, I mean for similar elements it shares with this movie, what you're talking about now is the stuff that takes Midsummer to another level for me. The meticulous filmmaking, which is very Kubrickian. Like every mm-hmm. like the smallest little camera moves and everything feels super calculated. It feels like the person behind the camera spent thousands of hours putting together in their mind and and in front of the camera something that you may see for a minute they they probably spent a thousand hours in their own time thinking about how exactly they were going to shoot that one simple shot whatever it was um there's that but there's also the um because the whole movie is so like what you're saying midsummer also affects me in a similar way to like the shining in which, obsessively, there's long stretches of The Shining where nothing in particular is happening. But again, because of how meticulously it's executed from the filmmaker, it just makes you feel uneasy just in the execution. Even if you're not seeing anything mm-hmm. specifically creepy or scary or anything, it's just because everything's so uh, oppressively sterile in a, in a, in a way... In a, in, a, in a way of speaking. I get that with 2001. <laughs> That's exactly what I get with 2001. 
Because I'm not a big Shining guy, I'm, I'm too much of a Stephen King kind of acolyte <laughs> to really... I mean, that's my favorite Stephen King book, so I just have issues with that film. But that's exactly the vibe I get with 2001. I mean, I think the movie, in its own way, is like a horror movie. It is, but for some... Well, most of it doesn't affect me. I agree with that on 2001, except, except for me, the whole movie doesn't disturb me. It's particular parts that highly affect me in the way you're talking, uh, but not the movie as a whole. That's fair. Um, but there's definitely... Like, I feel like um, Robin Hardy with this film... He had a real kind of assured hand with keeping the tone just right, balancing the musical numbers. Some of them are more fun, some of them are a little bit more ominous, but it's definitely not at the same kind of, like you said, meticulous level of planning. And that's kind of nice. Yeah, and I'm not saying at all that everything needs to be that, because I don't want people to yeah. think that I can only appreciate things that are over-calculated. No, it's just those hit me in a different kind of way, and not in any way trying to take away from this movie. It's just, yeah, one style obviously speaks to me more than the other style, but that's like mostly my personal preference, etc. But yeah, and the movies are so framed, kind of juxtaposed against each other these days. It's hard not to talk about one without the other. But. Yeah, yeah, and again, there's so much similarity in their story in in the stories uh, of both. Even though there's a lot of differences, there's there's definitely a lot of parallels. But it's all good. Uh, yeah, I'm happy to be in the world where both exist, and I've seen now seen both. Well, there was uh, one more thing on my notes that I forgot to mention here, okay. and that's to do with Mr. Christopher Lee. So he has that whole speech where it kind of gives the impression that he doesn't actually believe in any of it. And I was just curious if, if you thought he did it at the end, because I'm still not sure. I didn't focus a lot on Christopher Lee and his sayings, but... <laughs> Even with my not fully paying attention to him and, and hanging on his every word, I totally get that vibe. I I mean I have to rewatch it and pay attention more, but I, I think you're probably right about that. Or the seeds of doubt are planted in the viewer's mind for sure. Um, which again I th I think because I'm no expert on these occult slash cult stories, um, whether it's like historical docudramas or whatever. I haven't seen, like, for instance, the any of the versions of, like, the uh, the guy who started the Branch Davidians in, in Waco, Texas. Um, oh, yeah. I can't, think of, I can't think of his last name right now. But, but there's been, like, at least a couple popular docudramas in recent years on that. I haven't seen either one because I'm not that interested. But I'm sure if I was to watch those things or to go down that um, road you get that whole thing because i think that's like a, a common theme in these occult type things of uh of maybe whoever the charismatic leader is maybe doesn't even believe all this stuff that they're preaching it's just a system set up for them to consolidate and hold on to their power oh i just thought of another movie that's like that fits into this because I, I watched it back in november um this year or last year Antebellum. Oh yeah, I wanted to see that. Hmm. It's okay. It's not the greatest movie ever, um, but it it does have a a couple big twists in it, in line with a lot of the, the other movies we mentioned not too long ago with twists in, in this discussion. So Antebellum <laughs> does have that, um, but it also, yeah, it, it does. It has a lot of parallels um, to this type of story, 
um, because you have I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to spoil it or anything but you do have a character who, who definitely feels out of place where they are and aren't exactly sure what exactly is going on where they are and can't seem to escape this place where they're at and eventually you discover there is a cult of sorts behind everything oh, okay. I don't yeah. want to say more than that because <laughs> then it starts getting into spoiler territory and, and that movie is definitely built upon one or two big surprises that you're not supposed to see coming yeah I kind of got Get Out vibes which now that I'm thinking of kind of also relates in that way yes you're right all these movies do and it's not that they're all the same or anything, but it's always about a relatively small group who has some fringe ideas about XYZ, whatever mm-hmm. that is. And and pr- again, like I was just saying, like somebody or some group of elders or somebody like a leader is trying to preserve what they got going on. You know, it, yeah, if we keep talking about this, eventually all roads lead to nazi germany that's something one of my old podcast mates from long ago that's something that would always come up when we'd have our crazy discussions is eventually the conversation will end up getting to hitlerian germany because there'll be some type of parallel to that the parallels are unfortunately endless so many roads lead to, leads back to that yeah i mean we can go to the phantom menace the emperor or you know bringing up the empire and his zealots and followers. You know? Hey, what about the the cult of cult of Exegol? Should we t- start talking about that again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> oh, I mean, um, Khan. There you go, Khan. Perfect cult leader. Right yeah, there. I guess he's got his little group there. Yeah. Yes, a hundred million percent. <laughs> yes. The, yeah, we could we could go all day with this stuff. God, that movie's so great. Oh man. It is not into darkness, but no, 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 not into darkness. <laughs> Just to clarify, since that exists, <laughs> no, but I mean, but also, I mean, Space Seed is on its own such a standout classic Star Trek episode. I mean, that's why it's the the one they went to. What can we build on from the series? Fucking Space Seed. <laughs> yeah, and then you got Ricardo Montalban, who, of course, is in charge of his own island. Eventually, a fantasy island. <laughs> Oh god, this is completely off topic. Did you watch that Blumhouse uh, adaptation of that? <laughs> no, but I was curious about it because because that is a show that I kind of used to like to watch um, a fair bit when I was younger in syndication. And I was curious about it. It's just, I just heard such negativity that I kind of pulled my jets. But that doesn't necessarily always stop me because... Because just because there's all that negativity doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to hate the movie. A lot of people shit on Antebellum, yeah. uh, like reviewers, I mean. But I still found the movie enjoyable to a degree. Yeah, I'll just say uh, Michael Pena's No Mr. Rourke. <laughs> but, um, oh, that's that's funny. That makes me think of, um, again, The Man with the Golden Gun. Because I remember in the Shake and Not Stirred episode, you guys kept saying how um, Christopher Lee in that was basically pulling a Mr. Rourke. Yeah, like tattoo with um, and the way he dressed and his weird little island. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and and practically, you know, the majority of all the Bond villains throughout 
the movies, they're all again, little cult leaders, practically all of them. And it's the same thing. You know, creating your own system and then trying to preserve your power. But I guess we should close this down. I gotta go get some dinner for myself here. Any uh, last words? Uh, no, I, it's just... <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I chose this. I already stated at the beginning the impetus. But that being said, I had no idea how amazing the movie would be. How much discussion it would generate. How it goes off in so many different... Well, part of that's me. Because that happens <laughs> to go off in different directions when you just mm-hmm. bring up anything. Uh, but... It was a fantastic movie, but I'd be afraid. See, but it's not the thing that's necessarily going to turn me on to investigate other British horror movies of this time frame, because it was this movie was so good, and I have a fear that anything else I watch is, from the time period is not going to be nearly as good. So I don't know. Yeah, it depends what you're looking for. True, but I don't know what I'm looking for <laughs> when I go into these things. It's great chatting with you. Absolutely, my pleasure. Super fun. I was going to quickly ask before we wrap it up are there any other kind of like cult movies that you can think of that are kind of like this in any way? Because there's like a weird one that I watched about Jonestown I, I'm just thinking of like, because I do like this kind of vibe of someone going into like a weird kind of cult, but I can't really think of a ton of them. I can't think of a ton and I haven't seen a ton but one that just springs to mind real quick I think it fits, even though I've only seen it once and it's been a long time since I've seen it The Village Oh, yeah. I feel like I need to revisit that and see what what my new revised opinion is of it. Because I haven't seen it since it came out for rental whenever that happened. And I kind of like the movie, but I wonder what I think about it now, seeing it again with, like, fresh eyes. Yeah, it's... Sadly, it's a well-made movie. I just feel like by the end of it, it becomes kind of pointless, but... Yeah, the only difference with that one is it's not so much people coming into a cult as much as people realizing that they're in this kind of uh, problematic state and okay this is not the same and uh, and it just because of course it's fresh in my mind because i just got my physical copy but <laughs> you know just thinking about there's some relation to the witch i think just with that it's only it, we only in that movie they obviously only focus on a family unit for the most part but 
that family unit feels like a micro cult in of itself. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I'm sure there's others that I'm just not recalling at this time or whatever. Yeah, I know Kevin Smith made that um, Red State, if you saw that. That's kind of similar. I know a little bit about it, but I haven't seen it. That's when I fell off Kevin Smith after that movie. Usually when <laughs> these types of stories come up, though, again, it's usually in some episode of the week of some type of sci-fi show, whether it's something mm. like Star Trek of any era of Star Trek or like the aforementioned X-Files. Um, it's that kind of thing where they show up in some, obviously in Star Trek, it'll be some alien community or some alien planet where, oh, they seem so delightful. And it seems like a paradise planet, but there's always like this darker thing going on. Um, or, I mean, you could even say, if you stretch your imagination, you could even say, because it's another timeless type of story, no pun intended, the the time machine obviously the hg oh, yeah. book but then of course the 60s the original 60s movie where our protagonist the time traveler again comes into what seems like an idyllic world where and it's funny because obviously the novel and the movie predate the free love movement and everything yet was it the eloy i mean is that what they were called oh wait or is it it is the eloy i think yeah, I think so. Yeah, and they it's were like that. the the Aryan blondish looking humans who seem to be living like in the Garden of Eden until you realize mm-hmm. what's going on behind the scenes. Which of course, if anyone knows classic Doctor Who, it's the exact <laughs> they ripped the whole thing for the original Dalek story. Yeah, and then of course they do their whole H. G. Wells episode too, Time Lash. <laughs> <laughs> now see I'm one of the few classic Doctor Who fans who appreciates that particular story so that's why i can only laugh with glee but most doctor who fans don't have that reaction when you bring that up i can stomach i can stomach any classic who i mean it's all at a fine baseline for me i can stomach but i mean i want to all of it uh but um but yeah i don't know i I, there's probably some better examples of cultish type things that i'm just not thinking of right now yeah i wish i could think of more too that's kind of why i asked because i was like oh i'm kind of getting into a mood where i want to watch some more of these types of films but couldn't really think of too many and i know there's more and i know i've probably seen more they're just not coming to me right now uh email in at the novice at gmail.com if you've got any suggestions because i definitely want to check out some more of these films it seems like though you'd mostly go downhill from here but uh, who knows who knows uh, yeah, it could be some hidden gems. I, mean, I think we're closing out, but as I started with talking about Midsummer, just like this movie, I never thought I would be captured by the movie or the story or the the vibe or the the, um, the environment, uh, the space that the movie fills. I never thought that would be anything that would attract me, and. Man, it does. I, there's there's something else about both of these movies, uh, this and Midsummer, that really draws me in that I don't think I've put my finger on yet in this discussion, and maybe it'll come to me at a later time. But there's something else in front of my face um, that I can't identify that pulls me into both of these movies that we have not mentioned yet. Uh, hmm. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I, I know it's right in front of my face. 
I mean, I guess I did mention, but I love the kind of the idyllic vision that they're living in. And just isolated from society, their own little pocket. They're not kind of trapped in the bounds of a very Christian society, which can be very restrictive in many ways. Uh, the, there's almost like a fantasy element to it before the horror comes in. There is, but see, these are larger philosophical things to discuss and, and to to um, break down and digest because I can't remember if it was our pre-discussion when we were talking about islands. Is that yeah? I, think, I can't remember right? either. <laughs> I think it got recorded, but I'm sure it got recorded. But I think it was before we officially started this episode discussion. But we, the idea of islands came up. Uh, and you talk about how you liked island things, and and there was some other very obvious island stories that I didn't bring up in that pre-discussion, but now you're making me think of them because it's all the same theme, and it's it's used so much in other things. Two more recent things that I'm thinking of that are very similar to each other in this way is Moana, hmm. because Moana is a very uh, based upon like traditional myths and things not just from pacifica but like i said in other mythology which is the idea of being on your island the place that you know where you know everybody life makes sense because everything in your island world makes sense by the laws of the island whether it's the ones that the inhabitants make up or just the way things are and then anything off the island like in moana is the unknown world where who knows what can happen because the rules no longer apply, the rules of your life or what you're used to. And, and that's such, I mean, Moana, the story is very much based upon mythology like that. And there's now, if you get into that territory, there's a million examples because another recent example that is so much like that is um, the first Wonder Woman movie. And of course, from the comics of like the Wonder Woman origin story. And it's the exact same thing. Once the, um, what are they called? Um, what do they call their people? Uh, I can't remember what they're called. Yeah, I can't believe I'm... Because I wanted to say Athenians, and then I wanted to say <laughs> Amazonians, or but I can't remember... No, it's not, it's not... I can't even remember the name of their island now. But... Um, yeah, I can't believe I can't remember either. <laughs> Demascara? I don't know. But it's the yeah, same it's situation. Yeah, once, they, once they separate themselves from the outside world, um, everything is just we're going to be safe on our island and safe to practice life and belief just the way we want take ourselves out of the, the the regular world so we can do our own thing and all these things whether it's moana or the first wonder woman movie it's the same concept even though they don't say it out loud which is they are like cult like communities very insular very we govern ourselves by the way we want and we we have our own beliefs in the way we want and we don't really care what anybody else outside island does because that has nothing to do with us but yeah so if you go down that road even though those aren't specifically like, no one calls moana an occult movie but there there are strands of dna that are extremely similar you can see that even going back to, I can't remember if it was in this discussion or again, the pre-discussion, when I brought up Odysseus in, in the Iliad and in, in the Odyssey, I mean, he starts off on his island and he goes off and gets lost in his adventure in the war and everything else. 
but after that he just wants to go back home because that's what he wants to do and go back to his island and his where he was sort of like the local king so to speak and back to his wife and everything and that's just that's another take on that island mentality of of island representing home representing the garden of eden where you always know up is up and down is down uh, on your island whether it's a literal island or a, a virtual island a figurative island 